We're going to be reading an extended portion from Genesis chapter 18 and 19. 4,000 years ago, the first Jew pleaded with God to show mercy on the wicked for the sake of the righteous living amongst them. And people say the Bible has nothing to say to the modern world. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and, and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? 
Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45, he said, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city, Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like to them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow comes here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so they, they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as he had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, 
Here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, thank you, Josh, so much for reading that long passage for us. Uh, good morning, everyone. Let me have my welcome to you, uh, especially if you're new or visiting us this morning. Uh, if you are, you've joined us midway through the, uh, a series in the book of Genesis, and we're looking at this story of, of Abraham. It's our, our sort of practice as a church. We preach consecutively through books of the Bible. So rather than just picking and choosing our favorite bits, we take a book like Genesis or a section of a book, and we look at the next bit and the next bit and the next bit and the next bit. And we try to make sure we pay attention to everything uh, that is in it. And the reason we do that is because it means that we are compelled to listen to everything that God tells us, not just the parts that we like. It means that we listen to the whole counsel of God, including this sort of thing that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But it's here this morning, this, this passage, because there are really important things that God wants to say to us through it. So let me, let me pray for us and ask for his help as we look at it together. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much that all scripture has been breathed out by you through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that it's able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that through this passage, even this quite difficult passage, Lord, you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and do just that, make us wise for salvation in Jesus. Show us what it means to uh, trust him and be rescued by him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In our lives, we are constantly being bombarded by warnings. A road sign warns you of a slippery road ahead. Your dash light on your car warns you that your tire pressure is low. The Met office warns you about weather coming in and tells you, do not travel unless it is absolutely essential. A group of scientists warns you about climate change. But I wonder, how many of those warnings do you actually take seriously? I mean, when did you actually do something different in response to one of those warnings? 
Because it depends quite a lot, doesn't it? It depends on who the warning is from. You know, if your car dash light, like mine, always tells you that your car pressure is low, it pings up on the motor and you think, it'll be all right. <laughs> you don't do anything about it. When, when the Met office issues a weather warning, which they do all the time, you think, ah, oh, I don't really want to be inconvenienced by rain or wind. I want to do what I want to do. So I'm going to do it, no matter what the weather is. This passage, though, that we're looking at this morning, it is a warning. It describes the destruction of a city in the Middle East several thousand years ago. But its purpose for us today is to warn us of the judgment that will come when Jesus returns. The only question is, will we take it seriously? Will we actually do anything about it? Now, it's a long passage. We're not going to be able to look at everything in detail. We're going to focus on the story of the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've got questions about the other stuff that happens in the passage, you can ask me afterwards. So three things we're going to see. And here's the first. We're going to spend most of our time on this one. The first thing we see, God's judgment is right. God's judgment is right. The previous two chapters, chapters 16 and 17, they cover a period of 13 years of Abraham's life. But in these two chapters, we cover a period that lasts less than 24 hours. It begins with a meal in the noonday sun, Abraham looking down towards the city of Sodom with God and the angels. And it ends early the next morning, Abraham once again looking down the valley over the ruined city of Sodom. We begin in, in, in verse 1 in chapter 18, and Abraham, he's sitting in the doorway of his tent in the heat of the day. He's just about to drop off for his afternoon siesta when, verse 1, the Lord appears. Only slightly confusingly, in verse 2, what Abraham sees is three men. Uh, Abraham, so he sees three men. It becomes clear, though, from the rest of the passage that two of these men are angels, and the third is the Lord, the, the pre-incarnate Son of God. Though their true identity, obviously, to some extent, is veiled, Abraham seems to think that they're men, then later realizes it's the Lord and, and a couple of angels. Anyway, so Abraham sees these men approaching, and immediately Abraham springs into hospitality mode. Despite the scorching noonday sun, he runs around hurrying from Sarah to the servant to have bread prepared and a calf killed to prepare a meal for these honoured guests. And as they eat their meal, the Lord repeats his promise. We saw that last week in chapter 17, this impossible promise that at 90 years old, Sarah will have a son about this time next year. Then we, we jump down to 16, to, to verse 16. And after their meal, the men get up to leave and they turn their eyes across the Dead Sea down the valley towards Sodom. This is their intended destination. And as soon as the writer mentions the city of Sodom, we should know what's coming. Because if you were here, if you remember back in chapter 13, we were told before that Lot, Abraham's nephew, chose to move near to Sodom. And we got the inside track back then in chapter 13. We, we were told then that Lot moved there. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know why the Lord did that. Because the people of Sodom were sinning 
greatly against the Lord. So as these angels turn their eyes down towards Sodom, we know what's coming. Abraham does not. So like a good host, Abraham walks along with them a little of the way to sort of see them on their way and say goodbye to his guests. But just before they depart, we get this slightly strange interaction between Abraham and the Lord. So verse 17, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. It's strange, isn't it? Because it's slightly hard to work out. Is this the Lord sort of, is this an internal monologue? Is this the Lord talking to himself without Abraham being able to hear? Or is this the Lord talking to the angels without Abraham being able to hear? It's not, it's not really clear what's going on. I actually think it might be a third option. I think this is more like when a parent says to a child, shall I tell you what we're going to have for pudding tonight? See, the, if you're a parent, the reason you do that is not if you're genuinely wondering whether you should tell your child where, what you're going to have for pudding. The reason you say that to a child is to engage them. You're trying to get them excited about what you're going to be having. So the child says, whoa, 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 tell me, tell me, what are we going to have? I think that's the purpose here. The Lord is trying to draw Abraham into a conversation about Sodom and and what's going to happen. He's going to invite Abraham to intercede, to plead for this wicked city. So I think what the Lord says, Abraham can hear. <laughs> He's like, shall I, shall I tell Abraham? He's like there hearing him. Shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And then in verse 20, he does. Verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. Their sin's so grievous. I'm going to go down and see if what they have done is, the, is as bad as the outcry has reached me. If not, then I'll, I'll know. See, like Abel's blood in Genesis chapter 4, The sin and wickedness of Sodom, it cries out to God for justice. Like Noah's generation before the flood, their wickedness is so great. Their sin is so grievous that it demands God to do something about it. Like the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, God has come down to see for himself. To see if the reality is as bad as the rumor suggests. That's not to say that God doesn't know. He does. God has perfect knowledge of everything that happens in his world. There is nothing that escapes his sight. Nothing is hidden from God. The point of God saying, I've come down to see it, is to show us that when God judges, he judges rightly because he judges with a full knowledge of the facts. God never makes a hasty judgment without seeing the evidence. He never prejudges prejudice based on appearance or rumors. He judges with a full knowledge of all the facts. And therefore, his judgment is right. But this is also part of the invitation. See, God is reminding Abraham in his hearing of his promises to bless him and to bless the whole world through him. Now, we saw last week that promise is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus, who brings salvation to the whole world. But I think in in what Abraham does here, we get a glimpse of that, that blessing that is going to be brought to the whole nations, because Abraham is being invited to seek God and to intercede before God on behalf of this wicked city where his nephew Lot is living. And so in verse 22, the angels 
the two angels head off towards Sodom to investigate, while Abraham remains standing before the Lord. And there's a slightly awkward moment of silence between verses 22 and 23. You can imagine Abraham standing there before the Lord, wondering, should I, should I say something about this situation? What should I do with this information I've been given? And in verse 23, he's made up his mind and he approached the Lord. Now, if someone is standing before you and then they approach you, it's likely that they have seriously invaded your personal space. <laughs> what, what, what's going on? I don't think we're meant to understand like that. I think we're more meant to understand it like when a barrister approaches the bench. The barrister asks permission of the judge, may I approach the bench in order to plead a case? That's what Abraham is doing here. He approaches God in order to plead for this city, which is destined for judgment. And then over the next 10 verses, we get this back and forth between God and Abraham. And the central question at the heart of it is verse 25. Will the judge of all the earth do right? That's the question. Will God do what is right? God has told Abraham, I'm only going to judge Sodom if it really deserves it. And so Abraham then, what he does in the next 10 verses, he kind of presses that question. Well, do they deserve it? Are you right to judge them, Lord? And so he asks God, well, what if there are 50 righteous people living in that city? You cannot sweep away the whole city. You can't treat the righteous and the wicked alike. If there are 50 righteous people, you ought to spare the whole city for their sake. And God agrees. Because his judgment is right. And so God says, okay, if there are 50 righteous people, I will spare the city for their sake. But Abraham knows what Sodom is like. And so he thinks, well, hang on a minute, there might not be 50 people there. So, so what if there's 45 or 40 or 30 or 20 or 10? Actually, all Abraham needs is only for one righteous person to be found. He only needs one righteous person who can stand in the gap for the whole city. But sadly for Sodom, there is no one righteous, not even one. It's the same in our city, same in every city. No one righteous, not even one. But through Jesus Christ, God has provided one truly righteous man. One righteous man who can stand in the gap, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus is the one righteous man who brings blessing to the whole world. One righteous man for whose sake we can be spared the judgment that we deserve. One righteous man who even now is interceding for us. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing in heaven right now? It's this. If you belong to Jesus, Jesus stands before the Father. He approaches the bench as our advocate, holding out his nail-scarred hands and pleading with the judge, forgive that one for my sake. Bless that one for my sake. Protect that one. Look after that one for my sake. But there's no one in Sodom who can do that, let alone ten. 
God's judgment on the city is just and right. This is not like a British Army collateral damage incident where a bunch of innocent civilians get caught up. That's not what's happening here. For every single person in Sodom, their judgment is deserved because the judge of all the earth will do right. And we see that for ourselves in chapter 19. The two angels, they arrive in Sodom in verse 1 and they immediately bump into Abraham's nephew Lot who is sitting in the gateway of the city. Now I just want to pause here for a moment because if you remember a few weeks back we first of all saw Lot move near Sodom and then he moved into Sodom and that got him into a whole load of trouble. He got taken off as a captive in chapter 14. Abraham had to come and rescue him. But rather than learning his lesson, Lot has gone back to live in Sodom. And not only that, now he's sitting in the gateway. It's a place of position and prominence in the city. The New, the New Testament tells us that Lot was distressed by what he saw in Sodom. Perhaps, maybe Lot is trying to influence the city for good. But it's clear Whatever influence he has is totally ineffective. When Lot meets the two men, he responds just like Abraham does. He immediately leaps into hospitality mode. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because initially the angels say, no, 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 we're okay, thanks. We'll stay in the square. And Lot is like, no way. You cannot stay there. You have to come with me. He knows it is a terrible idea to stay in the square in Sodom at night. And in verse 4, it becomes clear why. It becomes clear why Lot was so insistent they had to stay with him. Verse 4, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. This mob arrives at Lot's door and they want to gang rape his guests. And this isn't just a handful of depraved individual. This isn't just the scallies or the obos. This is all the men from every part of the city, both young and old. In Sodom, there is no one righteous. Not even one. Obviously, this is a terrible sin. This is not the only sin that Sodom is guilty of. Through the prophet Ezekiel, we're told a whole bunch of other things, that the city of Sodom was arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. God's judgment is just and right. The angels have experienced firsthand what the city is really like. Now, I just want to say, as an aside... Sometimes this passage is used as evidence of the sinfulness of homosexual sex in God's sight. That's why, that's one of the reasons why it became known as sodomy, that practice. But I just want to point out, the sin in this passage is not so much gay sex as rape and sexual abuse. Supporters of gay marriage likewise stand against those things. I mention that just because we need to be clear about actually what is going on in this passage. Now, I, I do also need to say the Bible is clear 
the only place for sexual intimacy is between uh, a man and one woman within the context of marriage. The Bible, therefore, it does condemn homosexual sex as sin, but it never, ever singles it out, always places it alongside a whole bunch of other things, including heterosexual sex outside of marriage and the use of pornography, all of which is to say, I think Christians have sometimes been guilty of using a passage like this to point fingers, which is not right, because all of us in here are sinners too. And God calls every single one of us to repentance and to receive his forgiveness. That's just an aside. I I know that's a hot topic, so if you've got questions about that, please come and chat to me afterwards. Let's let's get back into the story. Verse 4, there's a mob at Lot's door. And Lot, actually quite bravely, he goes out to confront them and he shuts the door behind him. And Lot says to them, listen guys, you cannot do this. This is a wicked thing that you want to do. And then tragically, appallingly, Lot just suggests another wicked thing to do. He's like, why don't you have my daughters? Terrible. Thankfully, the mob aren't interested in them. They just want the men. They dismiss Lot, some foreigner trying to judge them. And they they press forward onto Lot to try and break down the door. Now, thankfully, Lot's guests are not ordinary men. They are angels with supernatural powers. They, They manage to open the door, pull Lot back inside, and strike this mob with blindness. And we get this chaotic comedy scene where this massive group of men are scrabbling around, blind in the dark, searching for the door. But this is how wicked they are, right? Even that doesn't deter them. Another translation says, they wore themselves out groping for the door. They're struck with blindness, and even that doesn't tell them to go away. All of which is to show us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this city deserves God's judgment. God's judgment is right. And secondly, God's judgment is not a joke. God's judgment is not a joke. By by verse 12, the angels have seen enough. The reality really is as bad as the rumors. Judgment is imminent. But even now, do you see, there is still the priority of mercy. God still holds out the offer of rescue. And so the angels say to Lot uh, in, in verse 13, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, get them out because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord is so great, he has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot, he goes out to find his future sons-in-law who are pledged to be married to his daughters. And he tries to warn them, hurry, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. They thought he was joking. The idea that there will never be any judgment is the oldest lie in the history of humanity. Genesis 3, you will not surely die. But this is to take it one step further, not just to deny it will ever happen, but to make it into a joke. But isn't that so what our culture is like? Everything's entertainment. Lot desperately pleads with his sons-in-law to warn them about the coming judgment. And they think he's telling a joke, just you, you crazy old man. 
good one. It's the same attitude lots of people in our culture have. And when I was younger, I used to love watching The Simpsons. But it regularly makes a joke out of this idea that one day, Jesus will come to judge the world. But God's judgment isn't a joke. In verse 24, judgment comes. Lot and his family alone escape. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. He overthrew those cities, destroying all of those living in them. And here's where this passage meets us with that warning. Because Jesus says, this is an example of what will happen one day to the whole world. This story, it's a a local example of what will one day be universal. This is what Jesus says. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. That that day in in, in Sodom, it was a normal day. There were no signs in the sky the day before. People were just going about their ordinary business and then judgment fell on them. And Jesus says it will be exactly the same when he returns to judge the whole world. Our culture laughs at that. Our neighbours and friends might scorn when we tell them we might feel awkward about that. There's this constant pressure to get rid of this part of the gospel or to play it down and never talk about it. But God urges us through a passage like this, we have to hold on to this. This warning of judgment, it is a gracious, merciful, it's a kind warning because if we will listen to it, we can do something about it before it's too late. God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world and he has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. And that's personal. Concerns every single one of us, because before God, all of us are guilty. There is no one righteous, not even one. You might not be as bad as the people of Sodom, but we have all sinned against God, rejecting his loving rule over us. We've all sinned against other people, doing violence to others with our thoughts, our words and our actions. We all stand under God's right and just judgment for the wrong things that we do and the right things that we fail to do. God is the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden. He sees and knows everything. His judgment is just and right And he will bring the judgment we deserve. It's a deeply sobering thing. If if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, please take this seriously. God's judgment is not a joke. But we're not done yet. There's some good news to come at the end. Because third and finally, God mercifully rescues people from judgment. God mercifully rescues people from judgment. Sodom and everyone in it, 
is deserving of divine judgment. Our world and everyone in it is deserving of divine judgment. But Lot was spared by divine mercy. And that same divine mercy is for you too. And Lot really is shown mercy, isn't he? In verse 15, the angels warn him of the coming judgment. They tell him, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. It's a gracious warning. And Lot believes them, right? Lot Lot knows, okay, this is serious. This is coming. I've got to do something about it. He knows this isn't a joke. But in verse 16, he hesitates. Lot lingered. And that is a caution to us, even people who are Christians, that it's possible to know that Jesus' warning is true. Possible to know that, but to be so in love with this present world that you do nothing about it. Please don't make that mistake. Please don't make that mistake. Thankfully for Lot, when he hesitated, the angels, they grab his hand and his wife and his two daughters and they lead them out of the city, drag them out of the city. Why? For the Lord was merciful to them. Lot is rescued, not because he merits it, but because God shows him mercy. Lot didn't earn it. He doesn't deserve it. He wasn't owed it. He was not due rescue. He was shown mercy. And Lot knows that, right? In verse 19, when for some reason he wants to flee to the city rather than to the hills, he says to the angels, your servant has found favor in your eyes. You have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. Like Noah finds favour with the Lord and he and his family are spared the judgment of the flood, so in the same way Lot finds favour with the Lord. He has shown great kindness and mercy and he and his family are spared the judgment of the fire. But there's a second reason that Lot is spared that connects to that first one. It's in verse 29. Because as Abraham once again looks down the valley towards Sodom, now in ruins, we're told in verse 29, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Do you see the connection? God remembered Abraham and he rescued Lot. And they're connected. It's because he remembered Abraham that he rescued Lot. It's for Abraham's sake, because of Abraham's intercession. He's pleading with God that Lot is rescued. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Lots of us, I know, we're, we're praying and interceding before the Lord for friends and family, colleagues and neighbours, for our city, for our world, asking God to spare them for Jesus' sake. Those are the kinds of prayers that God answers. So don't give up praying. He loves to answer those kinds of prayers. Lot is rescued because of Abraham, because of Abraham pleading for him. That's how it works in Genesis. If you're connected to Abraham, you share in his blessings. And it's similar now. If you're connected to Jesus by faith, you'll share in his blessings. Abraham, then, he's a kind of picture of the way that Jesus brings blessing to the whole world. The blessing of salvation from judgment. Because God is still abundant in mercy. 
at great cost to himself, God has provided a way for us to be rescued from the coming wrath through giving his son, the Lord Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took on himself the judgment that we deserved. The judgment that we were owed, it was rained down in fire upon Jesus. And on that basis, Jesus stands before the Father interceding for us. And so we are spared from the judgment that we deserve by incredible mercy. And Jesus, he takes us by the hand and he leads us to the only safe place of refuge, to himself. This passage warns us of the judgment to come. Please take it seriously because it is not a joke. But this story, it also shows us the incredible mercy that God offers to us. And I want you to take that even more seriously. That amazing offer of rescue, it is for you if you have not yet taken it up. If you will turn to him, you will receive mercy. Why not do that today? Let's pray. We thank you so much, Father, that when you judge, you judge rightly. Thank you that your judgment is a good thing. We live in a world filled with such oppression and injustice. And we thank you that you are the judge of all the earth and you will do right. Thank you that nothing escapes you, that you see everything. And you will judge justly but we know lord that also means you will judge us justly and we confess that we we that's what we deserve but how we praise you that you have provided mercifully provided a way of escape that we can be spared the judgment that we deserve through the death and resurrection of the lord jesus christ we thank you so much that you have given us our savior who leads us safely out of the place of judgment and brings us to safety. Help us not to hesitate, but to take his hand. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.